The Sunday that I came to candidate was the Sunday where Jeff was sharing about Rwanda. And I was just blown away. I thought, wow, this is incredible, the stuff that, that he's doing in this country. And um, so excited, but it's also bittersweet. I'm going to miss you. Uh, Jeff is the only person I have ever known in my life who is a bigger president buff than I am. <laughs> As you guys get to know me more and more, it's kind of my lifelong dream to someday be president, and he knows more about them <laughs> than I do. We do have some other things to pray for, so if you would join me for that. And also we'll be in John chapter 3 this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this day and for your blessings. Lord, I want to continue to pray for, um, for Bob and Ellie Nielsen with, with all the things that they have going on in their lives and in the situation with moving and with Bob's health. And I pray for that, Lord, and I continue just to, um, to pray for both of them. Lord, for Ellie, I pray for, for patience and perseverance and what's a difficult time, Lord. And I pray, Lord, for opportunities to continue to uh, interact with Bob in this difficult time. Lord, I pray for Eileen Bauer as she continues to recover from her injury a couple weeks ago, Lord, and I pray for her today, that she be in good spirits, pray for your blessings, pray that you could use us to be a blessing to her as she continues to recuperate and recover. Lord, I pray for the message today that it would be edifying and challenging and sanctifying and pointing us all to your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. As I mentioned, John chapter 3 is where we'll be this morning. Continuing our series in, this, in the Gospel of John. I don't know if anybody else pays as close of attention to the calendar as I do, but after today, there are only six more Sundays before Christmas, if you can believe that. So this week and next week, we'll be finishing up chapter three in John. And then it's my plan to take a, a little bit of a break from John during the Christmas season. And uh, we'll resume in chapter four in January, Lord willing. Text this morning, John chapter 3, verses 22 to 30. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase. But I must decrease. Starting in the late 1950s, a group of three men became part of a group therapy experiment at the Ypsilanti State Hospital 
a mental hospital in Ypsilanti, Michigan. The men all believed that they were Jesus. It was a professor named Mike Rokic who had studied these three men in part to see if their perception of who they were would change when interacting with other people who claimed to be the Messiah. It didn't. In two years of study, none of the men ultimately wavered in their delusional beliefs. The Messiah complex is an unofficial clinical disorder where a person has a grandiose self-image and views themselves as a savior. It's not new, and in some instances, has led to tragic results. Cult leaders such as David Koresh, Charles Manson, and Jim Jones all made messianic claims about themselves. Around the world today, there are cults of personality in several countries revolving around leaders who call themselves to be the second coming of Christ or a reincarnated Christ. In the early years of the church and around the time Jesus came into the world, there were others who claimed to be the Messiah. In a world where people want to point to their own uniqueness and goodness and glory, in our passage this morning, you have John the Baptist, who desired specifically to point away from himself. In a world where many have claimed to be the Messiah, John knew that his purpose in history was to be the person to point to the real Messiah, Jesus. As the moon reflects the sunlight back to the world, John the Baptist desired to reflect the glory of Christ in the world. This morning, we're continuing our series in the Gospel of John. We spent the last three weeks looking at a conversation between Jesus and a man named Nicodemus. Today, we're entering a new section. In this passage, we'll move both in terms of time and location. And we see a return of a figure who was first introduced in John chapter 1, John the Baptist. Just a couple of quick notes or reminders about John the Baptist. John the Baptist is not the same person who wrote the Gospel of John. We saw in the first chapter that John the Baptist had a popular ministry and had attracted a following prior to the beginning of the ministry of Christ. And as his title indicates, John the Baptist was called John the Baptist because John the Baptist baptized people. The ultimate significance of John the Baptist is that he was the forerunner to Jesus. He comes in fulfillment of Old Testament passages which talk about one who would come to prepare the way of the Lord. John's life was lived to point to Jesus as the promised Savior of the world. And that's important to know for this passage this morning because John the Baptist knew who he was And just as important, knew who he wasn't. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at this passage, and we're going to look at it in three sections. And I'll say off the bat that most of our time will be spent in the third section as we build up to John's words. And with that, let's just jump right into this passage. First section is setting the scene. Verse 22. After this... Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. The section begins after this, referring to the preceding section. It's showing that we're moving in time. 
Jesus is with his disciples. Here, we learn that there was a period in the early ministry of Jesus where Jesus had a ministry of baptism. That entire event is absent from the other three Gospels. When we talked about John the Baptist in chapter 1, we talked a little bit about baptism and how in the first century, there was this cleansing ritual which was similar to baptism in which non-Jewish people sometimes partook when they converted to Judaism. And while there were some similarities to that in baptism, there were also some key differences. For starters, people would baptize themselves. Whereas when John the Baptist came along, he personally baptized people, and John's baptism was associated with repentance. Jesus would give baptism its fuller and present-day meaning at the end of his ministry when he instituted the triune baptism, calling upon his disciples to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. However, at this point in Jesus' ministry, there's no reason to think that Jesus was doing a triune baptism because he had not yet died and risen, nor had he given the Great Commission to his followers. So it's plausible that this baptism was more similar to John's. Something else which should be noted. In our passage, verse 22 says that Jesus was with his disciples and he remained there and he was baptizing. I take that to the disciples of Jesus were baptizing, not that Jesus himself was personally baptizing people. Why do I think that? Because at the beginning of chapter 4, the next chapter, it begins with, now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, I see no biblical evidence that Jesus ever personally baptized anyone in water. Moving forward, verses 23 and 24, says, John also was baptizing at Adon near Salim because water is plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Geographically, we don't know the exact location of Anon. Text tells us that it's a place where there was an abundance of water. Verse 24 makes the interesting note that John had not yet been put in prison. The author will make no further references to John the Baptist's imprisonment. It's something that's mentioned in all four of the Gospels. Matthew's Gospel goes into the most detail, and it talks about how John was imprisoned and then later beheaded under Herod. And the event here, John has not yet been imprisoned. And that's noteworthy considering the timeline of Jesus' ministry. For instance, Almost all of Mark's gospel is written after the arrest of John the Baptist, Mark 1.14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. That's the 14th verse of the whole book. Yet, at this point in the gospel of John, John the Baptist has not yet been imprisoned, implying that this event happens prior to the beginning of the ministry of Jesus in the other Gospels. 
So again, that's just a little bit of background on this passage. Second scene, we see a a conflict begin to develop. Verse 25, now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. We don't know for sure what the discussion was. It's ultimately secondary to the entire narrative. It's possible that the discussion or debate came up regarding John's baptism or contrasting the baptism of John and and Jesus, contrasting the two. Or looking at John's baptism compared to other cleansing rituals. We don't know for sure. But it does remind us of the fact that John himself had disciples of his own. Something else that we had also seen in chapter 1. And it was a couple of John's disciples who would ultimately be Jesus' first disciples. John 1, 35 to 37. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples... And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. So John has a following. Our passage this morning introduces us to the idea that some of John's disciples are defensive of their teacher, defensive of John. They approach John, and the entire focus of the discussion Shifts away from purification rituals. Verse 26. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, referring to Jesus, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. And calling John Rabbi, the disciples are showing him honor. No one else in the Gospel of John is called rabbi, aside from John here and Jesus. They refer to Jesus as the one who was with John across the Jordan and acknowledge that it is Jesus to whom John is bearing witness. Yet, they seem to be somewhat bitter in their response when they say, Look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Obviously, there's some exaggeration in their words. All are going to him. John gives his response in the next four verses, and that brings us to the third section. John's response, beginning in verse 27. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. That is an important statement into the sovereignty of God. Everything that we have comes from the Lord. The life you have, the abilities you have, the things you have, the salvation you have, all of it is from the Lord. God made everything and everyone. There is nothing we have created without the tools that God has given us. John's disciples see the followers that Jesus has amassed. They don't realize exactly who Jesus is and why this fruitfulness is something to celebrate. Their focus is clearly misplaced. It's misplaced on how it impacts John and their ministry rather, rather than what it really is, which is Jesus coming into the world to fulfill the divine plan through his sinless life and death and resurrection All they see are their dwindling numbers. Everyone is following him. They look to Jesus 
as if he's their competition. On the one hand, you have a first century prophet who was the forerunner to Christ, and we're seeing how his ministry and the ministry of Jesus interact with each other. Certainly, that's not a specific situation any of us can relate to. But in the attitude of his disciples, I think it's actually very relatable to human nature. John's response is noteworthy because there's always the temptation to put ourselves on a pedestal, to make much of ourselves, to want others to glorify us. It's a constant temptation. It's tempting to ignore where God is leading us and what he wants for us. It's easy to be arrogant. We're arrogant with God all the time. Our world judges God's law and his word and what God decrees is moral. Yet, even as Christians in our heart of hearts, there are times where we don't like what God says about something or times where we willingly disregard what God's word says. Numerous Bible commands that we can find reasons to ignore. Or maybe it's not a moral issue at all, but there are other ways in which we judge God. We judge why God allows certain things to happen or not to happen. We judge God for what he's given us or not given us. One of my favorite films is a movie called Amadeus about the life of Mozart. Early in the movie, you have another composer named Antonio Salieri, and more than anything, he wants to be a great composer. As a child, he prays to God, and he says, make me a great composer. Let me celebrate your glory through music and be celebrated myself. Make me famous throughout the world, dear God. Make me immortal. After I die, let people speak my name forever with love for what I wrote. And then he tries to barter with God. He says, in return, I will give you my chastity, my industry, my deepest humility, every hour of my life. But then you meet Mozart. And he's a musical prodigy. Seemingly inexhaustible and effortless talent flows through him. But his character is also vain, crass, condescending, and childish. In a later scene, Salieri realizes he's totally transcended by the ability of Mozart. You see the bitterness in Salieri. And in the movie, he burns a crucifix and tells God that they're now enemies. I contrast that with John the Baptist because it's so easy to read John's words here. And I think, well, yeah, I'd be this humble and submissive too. But we're so often not. We're more like the apostles. John 1035 to 37. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him, Jesus, and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. That's pretty incredible. They're jockeying for positions of honor. 
There's no humility in that. We see it again, Luke 9.46. A debate begins to arise among the disciples about which one of them is the greatest. To quote one of my seminary professors, if you have to have an argument about how great you are, you're not that great. (laughs) And that's not the last time we see it in the Gospel of Luke. Luke 22.24, almost the same wording. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. They're arguing over which disciple is the best one. Luke 22. This happens right after the Last Supper. They've just partook of the most significant meal in the history of humanity. Jesus has broken the bread as a symbol of his body, which would be broken for our sins. He's taken the cup and poured out the wine as the symbol of his blood of the new covenant. Jesus would be arrested, crucified, and die in less than 24 hours. And his disciples are caught up having a discussion about which one of us is the best one. Is it me? It's probably me. So it's easy for us to assume that we would just be humble and submissive to the will of God. But envy is tempting. Status and recognition are powerful idols. I think about the envy which John's disciples display, which the apostles display. I think about the envy that John's disciples in this passage have for the success that Jesus is having. It's interesting when I consider the Ten Commandments. Even people who aren't particularly religious agree that it's the basis, the foundation for America's morality and law. But several of the commandments are so easily ignored. It's easy to agree that thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness. It's easy to agree that those are good. But we're also told to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. But it's often treated as if it's just any other day. We're told not to take the name of the Lord in vain, yet people swear by it. And we're told not to covet. Covetousness and envy go together. Both revolve around a strong desire to have what you don't have or to have that which isn't yours. Exodus 20.17 You shall not covet your neighbor's house, You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Yet, it's so easy to live in a fantasy world caught up in what you don't have. Proverbs 14.30 says, Envy rots the bones. When the Apostle Paul gives his various lists of vices vices and virtues, he mentions Envy is a sin in more than one of those lists, as does Jesus. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus mentions envy along with other sins like murder, showing the seriousness of that sin. The grass so often seems greener on the other side. It's so easy to look at what others have, the personality they have, the life they have, the money they have, the toys they have, the experiences they have, 
the family they have, the friends they have, the kids they have, the time they have, the education they have, the home they have, the authority they have, the respect they have, and to be jealous of that. Envy is a sin because it takes our focus off of what God has given us and turns our focus to what we don't have. Envy and covetousness can lead to idolatry and the temptation to think that our life would be so much better, so much fuller, so much more complete if we just had this one thing. Envy is a sin because it's divorced from reality. Envy looks at the things that other people have that we want but then it filters out the challenges in people's lives. It only looks to the good in that. It makes it look like everyone else has a better situation, has a better lot, when the reality is that everyone has their own cross to bear. People who have certain things have missed out on other things. People who have certain achievements have sacrificed to achieve those things. People have their own areas of struggle, and sin, the frailty of human life. I was recently listening to an audiobook by a man who, in his early 20s, traveled the whole world for four years. And I'll be honest, I was a little bit envious. I thought, I should have done that. I can't do that now. It's too late. <laughs> but then I thought, I would have hated that. I don't like to stay in a hotel where the door opens up to the outside, let alone sleeping in tents and with all the things that he had to do. But I think that's what envy does. It only looks to the good of what we don't have and never really considers the negatives of those things. No one is perfect. Neither are anyone's circumstances perfect. While John's disciples are envious on his behalf, Noticing the greater success of Jesus' ministry? Again, John's view shows a high view of the sovereignty of God. And a high view of the sovereignty of God matters. A high view for the life that God has given us, the circumstances that he has given us, the gifts and ministry that he has given us. Because it can be so easy to resent those things. John's view of who he is in the light of who God is. John's view of who he is in the light of God's sovereignty. Because we lose sight of that every time we sin. John continues speaking, verse 28. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. John is continuing to speak about his purpose in the world. In the first chapter of this gospel, people are trying to figure out who John the Baptist is. He tells them in 120 that he is not the Christ. He quickly confirms that he is not the long-awaited Messiah. And when they finally ask John for an answer as to who he is, John says in John 1.23, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. 
And it's a quotation from the book of Isaiah. As we've already said, he is the one who was to come before the ministry of Jesus. And in Jesus beginning his ministry, John has seen his own ministry come to its fulfillment. John the Baptist lived in the world with the purpose of pointing to Christ. And in that sense, John the Baptist is no different from anyone who is a believer in Jesus because everyone who knows Jesus and believes in his gospel exists to point to Jesus and to decrease so that he may increase. The purpose of your life is to humbly serve the Lord with the gifts that he has given you and to point others to Christ by loving God, loving people, living out your faith, and sharing the gospel. John continues to comment on his role. He makes an analogy to a wedding feast, a wedding celebration in verse 29. He says, The one who asks the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John compares himself to a friend of the bridegroom. That's close to the idea of a best man. But in the first century, in this culture, the best man had a lot more responsibilities. He was somewhat of a coordinator for the wedding. He was an official witness to the wedding. He was a contributor to the wedding. It was an honored position. I've been in several weddings. I've officiated several weddings. I've been married. So I feel like I can say this on pretty good authority. The bridal party in a modern American wedding, it's pretty pointless. Basically, it's a bunch of people who the bride and groom pick to show that they have friends besides each other. (laughs) Definitely, it's a way to honor. It's a way to honor siblings and close friends, obviously. And obviously, those people are there for the bride and groom on the big day. But functionally, they don't do much. In the first century, the friend of the bridegroom was really an important role. John's metaphor is also significant because wedding imagery is used throughout the Bible to describe the relationship of God and his people. In the Old Testament, God is often described as the groom and Israel as the bride. God is faithful to Israel in spite of Israel's perpetual unfaithfulness to God. In the New Testament, Jesus is the groom and the church is the bride. And this is not the first time that we've seen wedding imagery used to this point in John's gospel. In chapter 2, Jesus performs his first miracle at a wedding where he turns water into wine. And that story, as we talked about at the time, is meant to point to Jesus' own wedding feast. The finalization of his kingdom in the new heaven and the new earth. In Revelation 19, we see there that the church is the bride of Christ at that wedding. While Israel was ultimately an unfaithful bride in the Old Testament, 
In the final inauguration of the wedding supper and of the Lamb in Revelation, it is a perfect wedding between Christ and his bride. John the Baptist probably did not understand all of that future reference when he made this statement. But there's a metaphor we see throughout the Gospels in looking at the ministry of Jesus in the world where it gets compared to a wedding. In the other Gospels, there's a later scene where John's disciples are actually compared to Jesus and his disciples. And as people compare them in Mark chapter 2, they point to the zealousness of John's disciples. Mark 2, verse 18 and 19. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. And Jesus is pointing to the time of celebration and joy that his ministry ushered into the world. Again, there's no better metaphor to make for a joyous occasion than a wedding. And so in our passage, John again reminds us that Jesus is the groom and John is the best man. At a wedding, the best man is not the main focus. He's not the star. He's not why you're there. It's the bride and groom. And in that, we again see the humility of John. For the best man, he's not in competition with the groom. The best man has one goal, to see the wedding of the bride and groom. Verse 30, John tells his disciples, he must increase, but I must decrease. It's not that he's saying it's a good idea that Jesus increase and that I decrease, but that Jesus must increase and John must decrease. John is embracing the will of God. He's not concerned with who's greater or with his standing because he knows Jesus is greater. His concern is for the ministry of Christ. One of the great preachers and theologians of the past century was a man named A.W. Tozer. He said this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. John the Baptist saw Jesus as the Messiah. He saw him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He saw him as the bridegroom. What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What do you think about God? And where do you see your place in that? Are you like John? Knowing that you cannot receive one thing unless it is given from heaven? Rejoicing in the bridegroom and anticipating his final wedding with the bride? His church? Or are you like the apostles? Arguing for your own greatness. Would you pray with me?
Our Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word, for the greatness of your Son, the gift that he has given to the world of the hope of salvation through believing in him and trusting in him. Lord, may we all do just that. Know that Jesus is the Lord, the bridegroom. Lord, may we approach Jesus with humility and rejoice that his work is being done throughout the world. As every hour, every day, the gospel is being shared, people are coming to faith. And may we share that with the way we live and share your word with others. Lord, may we decrease so that you may increase. May we come to you in humility, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.